thank you for your donation to Corbono, a nonprofit organization dedicated to the study of Scripture according to the mind of the Catholic Church. If you like this talk, we invite you to share our website, www.corbono.com, with others so that together we may participate in the evangelization of the third millennium. Our speaker, Najim Awad, lives in San Diego, California with his wife and seven children and has been studying and teaching scripture since 1995. Najib believes the Catholic Church holds and teaches the fullness of truth, and with his tremendous zeal and insight, he is able to communicate that raw truth without sugarcoating the teachings of the Catholic Church. He also believes that our job is not to change the truth, but to communicate it clearly and directly to others. And now, here's Najib. So then we are pursuing our study of the book of Genesis, and we're looking at chapter 12, which is really the calling of Abraham by, uh, by God. And um, reading these three verses, Now the Lord said to Abraham, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make you your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who curses you I will curse, and by you all the families of the earth shall bless themselves. That calling is not to be underestimated, uh, primarily because it requires Abram to leave everything. Um, and, um, And that is not something to be taken lightly. It's important for us not to underestimate the effort that Abram had to go through in order to be able to live up to the calling of the Lord, primarily because uh, he had to go from a city to a land that uh, was unknown to him. He did not know what he was going to face, what, was, what God was calling him to, do to him, what, what God was calling him to do. And also, he did not know uh, how that promise would come about, primarily because his wife was barren. He could not have any kids. So there was as far as he was concerned, a natural impossibility for God to make of him a great nation. Right? Because the I will make of you a great nation doesn't mean that somebody is going to elect you. It means that out of you a great nation will come forth. And it's a little bit hard when your wife is barren. So there there were a number of difficulties and the point we made was that and the point we're making also was that it took Abram the ability to live the virtues to a great degree for him to respond to such a call. Uh, very difficult for us to respond in the same way unless we're ready, unless we're prepared. Right? Sort of similar if some, somehow God were to call you and say, I want you, to go to, um, I want you to go back to the Middle East, to the land I will show you, and when you get there... Uh, you're going to become a great Christian nation. In view of the current odds, that looks almost like an impossibility. That's the sort of calling that Abraham was confronted with. Now, he didn't have to go himself. He also had to convince a whole bunch of people with him to go. How, how, would he, how did he do that? How did he convince these other guys to follow him, To, given that he received a call by God, whom he did not know, and probably the conversation might have gone something like this. Well, I got a call from God. Well, which God? We have a bunch of those. 
Well, I don't know. We don't know which God it is. No. Well, it's great. What did he tell you? Well, he told me to go to the land that he's going to show me. To the land he's going to show you. What's wrong with this one? Right? What's wrong with this one? Well, I don't know. He didn't tell me that. I just said I have to go. Where? Well, he's going to show me. Oh, great. What else did he tell you? Oh, he's going to make me, he's going to make out of me a great nation. Right. So, a God whom you do not know, who's probably none of the ones we have, told you to go somewhere, but he didn't tell you where, and he told you that he's going to make of you a great nation, and your wife is barren. Have where you been drinking lately? I mean, it sounds nuts. It's important for us to keep that in mind, all right? Very important, because uh, God didn't give Abraham any signs. He didn't make it visible. And as a sign of your, you know, follow me, I'm just going to make, you know, thunder or something or the other, or make it so clear that you, no, nothing. Nothing at all, whatsoever. That's it. You know, sometimes people wish that God would speak to them. (laughs) Beware what you ask for. Okay? <laughs> it may not be exactly what you wished for. Okay. And then there's the covenantal, uh, um, the covenantal aspect. I will bless those who bless you, and him who curses you I will curse, and by you all the families of the earth shall bless themselves. Um, so St. Anthony the Great, for instance, tells us that some were reached by the word of God through the law of promise and the discernment of the good inherent in them from their first formation. They did not hesitate, but followed it readily, as did Abraham our father. So his point is, some heard the, the word and then just did it. And it's really ironic that St. Anthony the Great, who says that, because this is exactly what happened to him, uh, St. Anthony of the Desert, as is known in the Latin, right? We call him St. Anthony the Great. Um, and uh, when my son was born, we, my wife and I had an argument, because we couldn't agree which St. Anthony will be his patron saint. <laughs> So he ended up with both. But St. Anthony the Great was a rich man, very wealthy, and one day he heard the gospel, if you wish to follow me, there was addressed to the rich man, go sell everything you have and come and follow me. And he understood it to be calling for himself. So he sold everything he had except for a little bit that he left for his sister, uh, for his, uh, yeah, sister, younger sister, so that she could be cared for, and then he went into the desert. So he could, he is one to recognize himself, so to speak, in a call to Abraham, right? Pardon? This, no, this is St. Anthony of the Desert, St. Anthony, which we call St. Anthony the Great. The, f- the, first, uh, the first in the monastic order, if you will. He's the first to have lived as a monk, okay, before St. Benedict. Um, St. Didymus the Blind relates the leaving of the land to the calling of the Lord. If anyone wishes to follow me and does not hate his father, his brothers, his sisters, and even his wife and children, he cannot be my disciple. And the point here that that St. Didymus the Blind is making is that that's how you interpret the word of Jesus in light of Abram. That when the calling comes, if you can't respond the way Abram did, and the word hate here really means if you are not willing to even hate all these things that block you, then you can't be my disciple. It doesn't mean that in order to, to follow me, you're just going to pr- practice hatred. right? But if even it requires you, if these things block you from following me, then you must oppose them. And that's and what, what, what Jesus had in mind was probably Abraham. Or Abraham, right? 
And then the beautiful quotation from St. Augustine. The right thing to do, brothers and sisters, is to believe God before He pays up anything, because just as He cannot possibly lie, so He cannot deceive. For He is God. That's how our ancestors believed Him. That's how Abraham believed Him. He had received nothing from Him, and He believed His promise. We do not yet believe Him, though we have already received so much. Right? It's a beautiful quotation to think about it. Uh, Kaiseris of Arles points out that our kinsfolk are our sins and vices. So the moral reading here is that when you read, go from your country, your kindred, and your fathers, it's our leave your sins, leave your vices, leave all those things that prevent you from following me, and come and follow me to the land I will show you, which means heaven, and obviously it's a land that he has to show us because we cannot see it. Hmm? Because we cannot see it. And then um, he, Kaisers of Arles, uh, asked, asked this question about leave your father's house. Who was our father before baptism? The devil. Leave your father's house, right? So that's the moral reading that can be applied here, fittingly so. Um, so I will bless you. The literal meaning is I will provide for your earthly needs. So in the old dispensation, the old covenant, the blessing meant earthly needs. So that meant, I'll provide for you, and I will make sure that you also have children. So that's why children were always viewed as a blessing, right? Because of the continuity. They're the way you can uh, see yourself going on, right? And um, so, for instance, in Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 12 through 14, we read, And because you hearken to these ordinances and keep and keep and do them, the Lord your God will keep with you, the covenant and the steadfast love which he swore to your fathers to keep. He will love you, bless you, and multiply you. He will also bless the fruit of your body and the fruit of your ground, your grain and your wine and your oil, the increase of your cattle and the young of your flock in the land which he swore to your fathers to give you. You shall be blessed above all peoples. There shall not be male or female barren among you or among your cattle. It was understood that the uh, physical bareness was uh, likened to the bareness of the soil. And just as no one would look at this barren soil and consider it to be a blessing, but rather a curse, no one would look at a barren womb and consider it to be a blessing, but rather a curse. Right? And God, as you see, equates all of these. You will get all of these coming to you as a blessing. So the first meaning of the blessing was the material blessing. However, beginning with the Psalms, we start to see a different kind of blessing that start, that start to appear in the conscience of Israel. So Psalm 115, verse 12 to 14. The Lord has been mindful of us. He will bless us. He will bless the house of Israel. He will bless the house of Aaron. He will bless those who fear the Lord, both small and great. May the Lord give you increase, you and your children. Hmm? Uh, one Psalm that is uh, very uh, appropriate... Um, and I'd like to mention it to your attention because it will serve you also in conversations with some uh, of our brother, uh, you know, Protestant brothers and sisters. If I can find, find the Psalms here, just give me one moment. Um, here we go. I think it's Psalm 136, I want to say. It could be 126. Yes. 136. 
So this is a beautiful psalm uh, to pray, especially if you are anxious, if, especially if you're facing difficulties of the spiritual nature. It's a beautiful psalm because it will help you quiet down. Um, oh, give thanks to the Lord, for He is good, for His steadfast love endures forever. Or give thanks to the, to the God of gods, for His steadfast love endures forever. And the whole psalm, which is fairly long, has every other verse repeating for his steadfast love endures forever. So anytime you have a Protestant brother or sister or a relative who asks you, why do you say a rosary? Why do you keep repeating all these prayers? Point them to this song and ask them the question. Why does the Holy Spirit inspire David to repeat this over and over and over again for his steadfast love endures forever? And that's in the Psalms. Okay? Beautiful psalm to pray. So, um... Psalm 136. Yes. And then likewise, Psalm 132, verse 13 through 18, we have the same notion of blessing, which now has become spiritual in kind. That conscience has been growing uh, in the mind of Israel. And obviously, it takes its fruition with Christ. It might be said that the whole conflict between Jesus Christ and the Sanhedrin was precisely on this notion of blessing. Whereas for them, it was the old notion of material blessing. As to Jesus, it was a spiritual blessing that really counted. I will make your name great, a man highly esteemed, in a material sense, but a saint as well. Uh, Didymus the Great notices that it was not a literal meaning, since it was not realized during Abraham's time. Abraham's died long before any of that came to, to pass. 400 years later, was there a great nation. Right? that was moving back into the land uh, of, uh, of Israel. Right? Um, yet the promise was made to Abraham, who received his due in heaven. So he made him a great saint in heaven. And that's why when you reflect on this, you see that the promise wasn't purely material, because Abraham never saw it, but it was really spiritual. Um, if that is the case, and this is another argument you can use with those who argue with you about the position of Our Lady, if indeed Abraham, God who doesn't deceive, who cannot be deceived, made of Abraham a great name, made him a great person, but we know that he made him a great person in heaven on account of his faithfulness, how much more the one who believed and always believed and was given the grace to carry the Son of God how much more her greatness is even greater than that of Abraham. Okay? Uh, you will be a blessing. One explanation is that Abraham will become a standard for blessing, a standard to imitate. Another is that he will be, ab- he will be, able- he will be a source of blessing for others. So, for instance, St. Thomas Aquinas tells us, we pray to the holy angels and to men, not that God may learn our petition through them, but that by their prayers... And merits, our prayers may be efficacious. That is the difference. Is that when we ask saints to intercede for us, it isn't that God needs to go, he needs us to go to the saints to hear our prayer. He can hear it directly, but our prayer is not efficacious. Why? Because we lack merit with God. Right? We lack merit. But when we go to other who then Pray on our be- praise on our behalf because of their merits, suddenly our prayer becomes efficacious. Right? And now imagine how efficacious is therefore the Mass, which 
effectively calls upon the merits of Jesus Christ. And that is why it is the greatest prayer of all. And as a matter of fact, every prayer outside of the liturgy, every, prayer, every personal prayer we say, every private prayer we say, every rosary we pray, every um, in, you know, intercession, everything that is happening outside of the Mass goes, flows to God through the liturgy. Nothing is separated from the liturgy. Okay? I will bless those who bless you. So one explanation is you will serve as a standard by which a blessing is invoked. As, for instance, in Genesis uh, 48, verse 20. So he blessed them that day, saying, By you Israel will pronounce blessings, saying, God make you as Ephraim and as Manasseh. So, for instance, so it's essentially saying, Just as I'm blessing you, others will be blessed. This is, by the way, the way the Jews will view it. Right? This is the, uh, the modern Jewish view on these blessings. Why? Because there's no power of intercession. All right. All right, that's one way therefore to see it. However, you can also look at it differently. Your faith will bear fruit to all the nations for scripture which saw in advance that God would justify the Gentiles by faith foretold the good news to Abraham saying, through you shall all nations be blessed. That's the letter of Galatians. Chapter 3, verse 8. And again, for he has looked upon his handmaid's loneliness. Behold, from now on, all ages will call me blessed. And when we call Our Lady blessed, we are blessed in return. Alright? St. Bede says, The promise here is more important for it signifies the generation of the new Israel, meaning the church. So that's a very important promise here. It's effectively the the, the the first promise that foretells the church. And that's what we call Abraham, the father of the believers. He's at the root of the church. Now, and curse him that curses you. The English translation obscures the distinction between the first curses and the second curse. That, and curses that curses you, right? I will curse him who curses you. The second curse used here... Um, is essentially to mean disparage, abuse, cause harm. So anybody who is going to cause you harm, that would be the second meaning. I will curse the one who disparage you, abuse you, causes you harm. But God's response, I will curse, has a much stronger connotation of to place under a ban, meaning to excommunicate, to deprive of the benefits of divine providence, to set outside, to cast away. Very strong term used here, and obviously it applies not only to Abraham, but to all his followers. Right? Okay. Now, why the disparity in number? Those who bless you and he that curses you. Right? One explanation is that those who will curse Abraham will be few in numbers. Another is that now, if the dispensation of death, carved in letters of, on stone, came with such splendor that the Israelites could not look at Moses' face because of its brightness, fading as it was, will not the dispensation of the Spirit be attended with greater splendor? For if there was splendor in the dispensation of condemnation, the dispensation of righteousness must far exceed in splendor. That's 2 Corinthians 3.9. And uh, the reason of this quotation here is to remind us that um, the hymn that curses you, right, effectively always goes back to only one, 
right? The devil and all those who follow him. Okay. And all the families of the earth shall bless themselves by you. The blessing imparted to Abraham would then be available to the nations. Abraham will be a source of continual blessing, which is realized in the new dispensation. Okay, and then obviously what is left unstated is that those who do not bless, them, bless themselves by you are what? Right? All the nations will bless themselves by you. Well, what happens to those who do not? Cursed, right? So you can see if you don't apply the... The, the covenant in, in its force of blessings and curses, a lot of the meaning is left unstated or unexplained. Right? And therefore, doesn't really allow us to fully understand how God interacts and operates with us. Alright. To the land of Canaan, Abraham goes then. So Abraham, verse 4. So Abraham went as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abraham was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. And Abraham took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, and all their possessions, which they had gathered, and the persons that they had gotten Haran, and they set forth to go to the land of Canaan. When they had come to the land of Canaan, Abraham passed through the land to the place of, at Shechem, to the oak of Moreh. At that time the Canaanites were in the land. Then the Lord appeared to Abraham and said, To your descendants I will give this land. So he built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. Thence he removed to the mountain on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and I on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called on the name of the Lord. And Abraham journeyed on, still going toward the um, Nejeb, right? So you say it? Or Negeb? Negeb. Okay, we would say Najib, but anyhow, Negev in English, right? Okay, thank you. So, one first point is that when he got to Canaan, he was at Shechem, and then he ended up at Negev. That's basically the full length north to south of the land of Canaan. So he traversed the entire land. Okay? Uh, part of it, yes. Yes. Um, not all of it, obviously, but it was mostly inland. He didn't get to the coast. right? But it's the length of the land. Um, so, first of all, Abram left. Abram went. Abram didn't talk, didn't say, yes, no, give me a week to get ready, nothing. So Abram went. That's, that is prefiguring the silence of St. Joseph. He went in silence, just like St. Joseph did later. And so, St. Bede, for instance, says, Everyone must go from his kin and from the house of his father. It is clear that all the sons of his promise must imitate him. We go forth from our land when we renounce sin, from our kin when we renounce our vices, from the house of our father for, for love of the heavenly life. Lot went with him. That is another, you know, this is a sadistic um, way of scripture to let us know that something important is going to happen. When they say Lot went with him, it's preparing events where Lot is going to be implicated. Shechem, uh, today you'll call it Tel Balata, which is east of modern Nablus, about uh, 35 miles north of Jerusalem. That's where Shechem would be located back then, was located back then. Uh, Shechem is mentioned in the Egyptian text of Pharaoh Sestoris III, which is about 1880 to 1840 B.C., uh, present-day Nablus. And Nablus, by the way, is uh, most likely a deformation of the Latin name that the Roman gave the same location, which is Neapolis. 
and then later on it became Nablus. Right? So it has a Latin root to it, most likely. The oak of Moray, uh, or terebinth of Moray, a mighty tree. Moray probably means teacher, oracle giver. Now, um, the phenomenon of sacred tree, particularly one associated with the sacred site, is well attested in many ancient uh, civilizations. Uh, so, for instance, uh, the judgment of Daniel in the Ugaritic epic of Akkad, uh, the tree might be looked upon as the tree of life or as being a cosmic tree. Um, its stump symbolizing the navel of the earth and its top representing heaven, a bridge between the human and divine spheres. Fertility calls flourish in connection with such trees. Uh, and this form of paganism proved attractive to many Israelites. So around many trees you had actually fertility cults, which today we would... That's interesting because it's no more fertility cults. It's really nothing more than a party. Right? We've taken care of the fertility piece. And so it's what today we would consider to be a party. Right? Um, so for instance, 1 Kings, the first book of Kings, chapter 14... Verse 22 through 23. And Judah did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and they provoked him to jealousy with their sins, which they committed more than all their fathers had done. For they also built for themselves high places and pillars and asherim on every hill, high hill and under every green trees. So why under every green trees? Because of the fertility cult. Otherwise it kind of makes no sense, right? What's up with the trees? Well, that's what's going on, right? And again in Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 19 through 20, Your wickedness will chasten you, and your apostasy will reprove you. Know and see that it is evil and bitter for you to forsake the Lord your God. The fear of me is not in you, says the Lord God of hosts. For long ago you broke your yoke and burst your bonds, and you said, I will not serve. Yea, upon every high hill and under every green tree you bowed down as a harlot. And Deuteronomy 16.21 forbade the planting of trees within the precincts of the altar. You can plant trees. What? Not because trees were evil, but because of the temptation to always use trees the wrong way. So God had to forbid the planting of trees. This is how powerful this was. Okay? So, definitely this was a mighty tree. And... Um, and, it, and then the statement is, the Canaanites were in the land then, a reference to the presence of the sons of Canaan in the land. Now, now that you understand the relationship with the families and the curse, and the relationship with the tree, and the juxtaposition of that tree and the Canaanite being in the land, you can understand that what the Canaanites were, were, were up to, right? the fertility cult under that tree. All right. The Lord appeared, first theophany or divine revelation. Again, Please, as much as you can, adjust your views. This is not God the Father. Every time we see theophany, every time we hear God talking, it is God the Son. It's not God the Father. Right? Hopefully, by the time you fully adjusted this, you will not create this kind of artificial dichotomy, the separation between the God of the Old Testament right, and the God of the New Testament. Because it's actually the same God speaking both in the Old and in the New. Okay. And uh, effect effectively, the first heresy that the church defended against was precisely the one that said, hey, now that we have the New Testament, we don't need the Old. The first heresy that the church had to fight against. We can just dispense with the Old Testament. We don't need it. 
And even today, you still he hear folks who will tell me that. Oh, we just have the new time. We don't need the old. Hmm. Right. Okay. So, the, the Lord appeared, which is a theophany, right? He didn't take bodily form, but he appeared. Uh, indicating that Abraham saw with his eyes, rather than hearing only, as was the case with Noah. An early name for a prophet in Israel was... Uh, uh, was... Uh, Essentially, roeh, which is seer. This does not imply seeing with eyes, but an inner vision, as in the case with Samuel. So, when we say that he saw him, we're not really clear whether he saw him with his physical eyes, or he had an inner vision. But it is certain that the visual aspect was present. It wasn't just hearing a voice. Um, and again, Novation, for instance, points out that it was the son whom, whom Abraham saw. The father was never seen, only the son. And that's in, in, in reference to the, the Gospel of St. John, first chapter of the Gospel of St. John, where he tells us that we saw him. He meant the Son, where the Father was never seen. Okay, I will assign this land, I will give this land. God will give the land, but it will, it will be won by war. The Torah is inextricably bound to the land, hence its potential and limits. So we need to understand this. God told him, I will give you this land. That is a promise Right? That's a promise that God made. It does not imply that God is going to wave a magic wand and say the magic word, and it happens. All that is being implied is that in time, the land will be yours, and my will will be done. But it, it doesn't mean it's going to be a straight arrow. What does it depend on? Much depends on how faithful people are to God. Much depends on their faithfulness. So, the faith, the, 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 if they live holy and faithful lives, the God's will will be realized quickly. If they don't, it will take time. It won't happen straight away. It will not happen straight away. And, and so, how long would it take for them to be able to get this land? Four to five hundred years. That's how long before the promise uh, was fulfilled. And how long did it last? About 250 years. That's it. It was very provisional. Very provisional. Hmm? So God, God's will will be fulfilled but the means through which God's will is fulfilled depends much on our response. On our response. Right? So, for instance, in our case today, uh, it depends much on the way we, um, you know, we look at suffering. If we're afraid of suffering, and if we're running away from suffering, and if we uh, don't embrace the small sufferings that God sends our way willingly, then eventually God will have to catch up with us so He can actually bring us to heaven. Right? So, uh, what's our response to God? That's the, always the question. How are we responding today with what He gives us? Are we making the, the most of it? Are we trying to live a, a faithful and holy lives? Or are we just trying to sort of run away from it? Now, um, 
And, and the other really interesting thing is to contrast this with creation. See, this is what I'm not a creationist in a scientific sense, the way it's been used today. You know, God creating everything. I don't believe in this. This is a perfect example. Them getting to the land was messy, bloody, chaotic, confusing, many, many setbacks. It was not a straight line. It was really crooked. And I think if you look at the way creation took place, you see the same pattern occurring there. You know, many stars being created, many stars being blown away, and atoms and all this stuff, and taking billions of years, and going through so many different stages before man is created. It's, it's the way providence works. Right? The way providence works across history. And now if you look today, for instance, our, at our world, um, if you believe in the magic wand God, you'd have every reason, to dis- every reason to despair because there doesn't seem to be any magic wand out there. Right? Things are going from bad to worse. Right? And so where is where's God? Well, God is in the midst of it, of it all. And His will is being done through it all. And His will will come to pass. And that is our hope. That is our peace. That is our tranquility in the midst of confusion and chaos and doubt and anxiety and crisis and the rest of it. God is not remote. God is not away. God is not, hasn't left us. He's right in the middle of it all, guiding it all through His providence. And we are like Abraham sojourners in a land that is foreign to us with Canaanites in it. He built an altar there. Yeah, so last point I want to make before the altar is that legal ownership therefore does not mean actual possession. Okay? He, God gave him the land. He owned the land. But it does not mean that he actually possessed the land. And we know why he gave him the land. Because of the curse on, upon Canaan, because Canaan usurped a power he should not have in the first place. So God was not committing an injustice in the first place by giving him the land which did not belong to Canaan. And that's why this whole issue between Israel and Palestinian and over who owns the land will never get, will never get resolved. Because the, at, at the root of it all is the proper understanding of God's authority over, over it and the 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 the, uh, the sense of justice, which uh, effectively rested the land with um, uh, with Noah, and then through the descendants through Abraham with Israel, but then when Israel forfeited Christ, right, they forfeited also that ownership because the land belonged to Christ. So the real answer is it doesn't belong to the Jews and it doesn't belong to the Muslims, and it only belongs to Christ. Right? That's the fundamental answer, but the, and that's the only way you can get peace in this place, but it's not going to happen. Right? It's not going to happen. Not as long as they are fighting the way they are. It's going to take a miracle, and I am willing to, uh, to um, bet that that miracle will, take, uh, will, will have Mary um, being at the center of it. All right, now he built an altar. So notice he built an altar and made an offering, something that was lost after the golden calf. So as a prophet, king, and priest, he could build an altar and make an offering. He could perform the priestly function. 
the patriarchs did that and it was lost afterwards. Right? So it's an individual act of worship. It's not communal. No altars were built by the patriarchs outside the land which were given them. So Abraham did not build altars in Egypt. Uh, Isaac or, uh, or um, Jacob did not build altars outside of the land. Why? Because they understood that this land was the place to worship. And that's why God gave it to them in the first place. It's a small piece of land. I mean, you could have told them, I'm going to give you the United States of America. Get on a boat and cross over, and that's what I'm going to give you. A whole land with riches, but it was never God's intent to give them material riches. He wanted to give them a place to worship. Right? He built an altar and invoked the Lord by name at Bethel. Bethel. Okay. Beit El. House of God. Okay? That's what Bethel means. Beit El, house of God. El is the head god in the Canaanite pantheon. If you look at the Canaan or Phoenician triad, El is the god. That's why you get uh, Allah. That's why you get uh, uh, Elohim. All those Els refer to God. Right? Um, <clears throat> Okay, and then toward the Negev, the southern and southeast end of the land promised to him. By now, Abraham has covered the land lengthwise from north to south. Right? So when he traversed this land. Alright, so then he gets there and God appears to him and tells him this is the land. Now we don't know how he got there. All we know that he got there. So again, providence is guiding him. God didn't tell him, you're going to get there. He did. Through his own exercise of his free will, yet that was providence working through his free will, to get him to where God wanted him to go. Right? And he got there, and God told him, this is what I'm going to give you. And in response, what did Abraham do? He offered sacrifice. He sacrificed as a thanksgiving. This is a, a, a thanks offering for, for God's um, goodness towards him. So now we go through um, verse, verses 10, 10 through 20. Abraham is in Egypt. Now there was a famine in the land, so Abraham went down to Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was severe in the land. When he was about to enter Egypt, he said to Sarai, his wife, I know that you are a woman beautiful to behold. I know that you are a woman um, beautiful to behold. And when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife, then they will kill me, but they will let you live. Say that you are my sister, that it may go well with me because of you, and that my life may be spared on your account. When Abraham entered Egypt, the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful. And when the princes of Pharaoh saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh, and the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. And for, this, for her sake, he dealt well with Abraham, and he had sheep, oxen, he asses, men servants, maid servants, she asses, and camels. But the Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abraham's wife. So Pharaoh called Abraham and said, What is this you have done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say, uh, she's my sister, so that I took her for my wife? Now then, he, here is your wife, take her and be gone. And Pharaoh gave men orders concerning him, and they set him on the way with his wife and all that he had. So, uh, famines in the land of Canaan were fairly uh, common. Uh, we know from... Uh, um, archaeological digs, that there are famines who lasted uh, 
decades in that land. It's not a land known for water, right? The fact that each patriarch experiences famine in the land has special significance. This is not the land flowing with milk and honey. That would be Lebanon. The precariousness of the land heightened the sense of dependency on the Lord. Again, he didn't bring him to a land flowing with milk and honey and all the riches were present. They really had to depend on him. What was the purpose of this land? To worship and to teach, teach them to trust God, that God will provide to them. You see why in the structure of things the nation of Israel was, in a real sense, the holiest of all nations? Because the focus for them was reliance on the Lord, to imitate Abraham which other nations did not have. They didn't have that understanding or that enlightenment that you have to trust God in everything. Who is Egypt? Canaan's brother. Genealogy. Genealogy. He's Canaan's brother. Okay? So he's related to Canaan. Now, for the famine was severe. Only force majeure, only a major... uh, Famine would have led Abraham to leave the land. And St. Bede points out that famine represents the deaf ear, those who cannot hear the Lord. Abraham went to Egypt to sojourn there, that is to aid those in need, as Daniel did when he went with the Jews to Babylon. That's a very important point, which is that we see already the missionary nature of the call of God. God doesn't call us simply to convert us, and that's it. There's always a missionary call where we have to go to Egypt or Canaan or other places and be able to bring to them God's word. And sometimes it's famine that pushes us out there. Circumstances force us to leave, but it's God's will that make that happen. And Didymus the Blind says, Sarai represents virtue, and this passage teaches us how to present virtue to a world full of vices as our sister and that as our possession. Always deflect attention drawn to us appropriately by recognizing the good the others see in us and giving glory to God. Right? So he, he views it as people see in us virtue. Instead, we, we don't own the virtue. We don't, we don't uh, reject it, but we just deflect it appropriately. Now, Sarai and the Pharaoh. As I said, Syria-Palestine had, fra- has had and has a fragile ecosystem based on the rains which come in the winter and spring months. So droughts and famine were not uncommon in the region. Uh, Egyptian pap- papyrus from uh, the reign of Anastasi the, s- the sixth reports of an entire clan going down into Egypt during a drought. So this was not uncommon to see people go, go down during the drought to Egypt. Modern archaeologists and geologists have found evidence of a massive 300-year drought cycle that occurred during the end of the third millennium, one of the time periods to which Abraham is dated. So there was a very long drought due to global warming. Just kidding. Um, So um, Now, Sarai is 65 years old and of surpassing beauty. Okay. Commentators will go either way. They'll, some will say, no, she, she looked like an older woman, but she was so elegant and so graceful, etc., etc., that they had to bring her to Pharaoh. Um, well, maybe, I don't know. 
Maybe Pharaoh was blind or something. I'm sure, I don't know. I think, I would tend to take it that, no, she was really beautiful. And that's it. Right? Doesn't matter which way it goes. The point that is important is, look at what Abraham did. First of all, Abraham did not lie when he told her, say you are my sister. Because Sarai happens to be his half-sister. And we read that from Genesis chapter 20, verse 1 uh, through 14, where Abram says, Besides, she is indeed my sister, the daughter of my father, but not the daughter of my mother. And she became my wife. So there was no lie on his part in stating that she was his sister. She was his sister. Okay. The second point to make is that he had a dilemma. If he discloses that she's his wife, they will both be killed. If he does not, they may both survive. And then Abraham therefore hopes that he will have an angle of negotiation, for he may not have expected they would take her to the king. Remember, they get to the border. So the text is still telescopic. It goes very, very quickly. They got to the border. They're talking to the border patrol, to the people manning Egypt. And then, next thing you know, she's in front of Pharaoh. Well, something has happened that the, that the text doesn't dwell much upon. Probably he hoped he would talk to the guards. Right? They will not kill him because he says, I'm, I'm her brother, I'm not her, her husband. There may be a point of negotiation, maybe he can give them money or something to be able to get himself, extricate himself out of that situation. Instead, he had no option. They saw her, they looked at her, they took her to the princess, the princess looked at her, took her to the pharaoh. And he was out. Okay? So he wasn't effectively um, being, how, how shall I say, um, um, devious here. He was hoping to open up some angle of negotiation with the Egyptians and extricate himself and his wife out of it. But instead, events overtook him. Now, they gave him sheep, oxen, asses, she-asses, and camels. In that order. And it's interesting that they separate asses and she-asses. Right? If you go back to the... the um, here we go. Verse 16. And for her sake he dealt well with Abraham, and he had sheep, oxen, he-asses, men-servants, maiden-servants, she-asses, maidservants, she-asses, and camels. Right? Uh, why separate he-asses and she-asses? Why be so specific? Um, so, asses in Hebrew is uh, hamor, which is effectively the wor- word we use in, say, Lebanese or other similar languages, hamar. Hamor is the Hebrew word for it, and is uh, of the male variety. Um, she asses, essentially, most of the time when they rode asses, donkeys were really she asses, not the male. Because the males are too stubborn and willful, and you can, it's really hard to control. Okay? Um, and, uh, and one problem with the male ass is when he sees the she ass, he goes nuts. That explains the separation. You'd never keep them together. You never keep them together. They're always separated. All right? 
you will see in Deuteronomy, for instance, that God really compares men to asses. Kind of, you wonder why. Anyhow, uh, so that separation obviously reflects the experience of the herders, for the ass becomes uncontrollable in the presence of the Shias. Okay? There's a problem with the camel. It's a problem that has, uh, that has uh, kept uh, uh, researchers uh, awake for long nights. First of all, you need to realize that back then, camel was not the normal mode of uh, transportation at the time that Abraham lived in. Um, the camel does not figure in Egyptian texts and art until the Persian period. It is conspicuously absent from the Mesopotamian texts, which are replete with information about the nomadic life of the time. Thousands of commercial and administrative texts from the old Babylonian period, 1950 to 1930 BC, maintain complete silence on the existence of this animal. You can't find any text that talks about camel. The effective domestication of the camel did not take place before the 12th century BC, a long time after the patriarchal period. So it's a modern means of transportation, relatively speaking. Um, so how do we resolve this issue? Well, the first question to ask ourselves is, why would anybody, because some of the commentators will tell you, well, that's because someone else during a, long, you know, a later period added camel to the mix. Okay, let's assume that's the case. What do you gain out of it? You get nothing. So what's the point? A better explanation is that certain bilingual Sumerian Akkadian texts from Mesopotamia equate a domesticated animal called a donkey of the sea land with a dromedary. Okay? It would seem that the camel was known, but it was essentially the Cadillac of the time. Right? It was a really it was like the panda. You won't see much, many people, you know, going around on a panda, right? So probably it was a sign of luxury. He didn't give him any, just, you know, your regular animals. He gave him a whole bunch of stuff on account of Sarai. Because he valued prized her so much that he just gave him a bunch of stuff. So coming from Pharaoh, you can understand that he would have the ability to do so. After all, he was rich, right? So... That, that's how we can explain it. Now, Pharaoh took Sarai. There are two sides to this equation. Most fathers will tell you that he didn't touch her. Okay? Most fathers will tell you he didn't touch her. And that the plagues of which Scripture speaks must have been uh, physical plagues that Pharaoh himself suffered from. Uh, potentially, um, it may have been um, temp- uh, temporary impotence. So something happened to him where uh, he wasn't functioning right or some other disease. And back then, anytime somebody would get sick like this, they would equate that with the wrath of the gods. And presumably he then called her and asked her a question and she may have told him the truth. And then he gave her back to him. Saint, Saint uh, Ephraim says that the reason why she was given to Pharaoh is that for her to find out that she was barren and it wasn't Abram. 
And I find that really fascinating because I did not think that the ancients knew that barrenness can be in males as much as in females. I thought they always prescribed it to the women only. But in this case, St. Ephraim's commentary suggests that he was saying the reason why is for her to find out that she was barren and wasn't her husband. Wow. So somehow there must have been a recognition that it could have been both ways. Which is very interesting because it helps us then to understand Scripture better. Right? And not always assume that they didn't know and therefore they always described it to the woman. Now, he gets really upset with Abram. Why did you do this to me, etc., etc., as if it was Abram's fault? I mean, you kidnapped her. If I had told you it was my, she was my wife, I'd be probably be dead now. Right? And you're blaming me for what happened to you. Why did this happen to him, by the way? Remember, he who curses you, I will curse. Remember the two meanings? The one who opposes you, the one who causes you grief, the one who essentially causes you hardship? Well, there you go. Immediately, the application was there. And that's also God's way of showing Abraham that I'm with you. Right? However, the question that lingers, must have lingered in his mind, as far as I can think, is, did I do the right thing in going down to Egypt? Because God was silent. God didn't tell him to go down to Egypt. He did it on his own. And sometimes it is really not clear, even for us, what is the right thing to do. We don't know, and God doesn't tell us. He seems to be content in letting us make our decisions, and we may even make the wrong decision. But if we make the wrong decision with a pure mind and a pure heart, with the intention of serving Him, He always fixes it. He always gets us out of it. So, he's not expecting us to act, to have perfect actions all the time when it comes to our decision, because we cannot. We don't know everything. But he does expect us to have purity. So, to be pure is to have an upright conscience before God. It's to say, if you were to look at me right now, Lord, I'd have nothing I can blame myself with, because I'm really trying to do your will. That is purity. That's the purity of thought. Right? And I think this is important. And so, oftentimes, it is when, when someone gets in a situation where there's indignation, right? righteous indignation, which is really not righteous, it's nothing more than a sign of pride. Right? We tend to see the faults of others through our own, the prism of our own sins. That's one of the psychology of sins, is that we see the faults of others through our own sins. So if you want to know where, which areas you want to improve on, record yourself complaining about somebody. And replace the him and the her with I. And that will pretty much be the area you need to work on. Okay? If you complain because someone doesn't do his job right, if you complain because somebody is not working the way you want him to work, if you complain about any of those things... If you complain about somebody driving uh, inappropriately or, or whatever the case may be, whatever upsets you and gets you going, that would be the area you would need to work on. If it's not exactly the area, it's something, something around that. So what are those indignations that you may have when you get upset about something? 
It's your, your guardian angel tapping you on the shoulder. Saying, I have something I want to tell you. That's what it is. But, we, but we're so busy complaining about others that we really don't have time to listen. Right? But take that cue and then when you get upset, okay, what, what are you telling me? What am I supposed to listen to? Right? Abraham maintains silence. Pharaoh says all this to him, he doesn't say a word. And God ends up blessing him materially, right, with the he asses and the she asses and the Cadillac and all that good stuff. And his wife is returned to him. And they both are safe. Yet God doesn't speak. He maintains silence. And it's only through his providence that Abraham actually is saved. So it is the providence of God, therefore, that must guide us in everything we do all the time. All right. Uh, we have time for some questions. Yes. So, let's, let's deal with the first question first, which is, if Abraham knew this was going to happen, why did he go down to Egypt? And presumably because, as Scripture says, the famine was so severe, he didn't have a choice. It was this or die of hunger and thirst. So, his hope was, I might be able to negotiate with them. The second point is that, yes, he cared about his wife very much. But if he approached them and they knew he was her husband, there would be no room for negotiation. And given that they want her, they would kill him. But since he is his bro her brother, then they could say, Pharaoh will marry her and will give you the dowry. So there, w there is a room for negotiation. So Abraham used their ways. He understood how they functioned in order to attempt to extricate himself of a really difficult situation. Having said that, the question remains, should he have gone down? And I think it's a point of reflection. It's hard because on the one hand, you had a very severe famine. So if you don't go, you might die of hunger and thirst. On the other hand, if you go, you expose your wife to dangers. He essentially made a judgment call. Yes, well the problem isn't that if he said she's my sister, they would then take her. They would take her no matter what. That's a given. He knows there's a risk, they're going to take her. And now he wants to be able to be in position to negotiate with them. If he says she's my wife, he's dead. There's no possible negotiation there. If he says she's my sister, he has the ability to negotiate. Uh, well, he didn't lie by saying she's his sister. She's his half his sister. He just withheld part of the truth to be able to allow himself and probably all that, was, that were under his care to survive. You know, as I said, it's a point of reflection. There's a lot to reflect upon. And I don't consider his action to be uh, perfect. Neither do I consider it to be completely immoral. All right? So... But again, the fundamental question remains, was he supposed to go down to Egypt? Because God did not tell him. So the piece that is missing is that he didn't make offerings to God and ask God to show him. None of that happened. He just went to Egypt. Right? So God takes us where we are, and as we go on our journey, there are many, many things that we do which are, not, which are, which are still offensive to God. 
which are not appropriate. We don't become a saint in a day. But it, it's not because of this that God is going to abandon us. Right? He will stay with us. He will help us along the way, provided we're open to His call. Provided we say, whatever you want me to do, I will do. We'll still bump into walls and do the wrong things. But hopefully, He will help us. You see, you see the point? Right. So it's the gentle mercy of God for those who love Him. If Abraham did not love God, he would not have done what he did. Yeah? Yeah. So it gives you a picture which is colored. It isn't the picture of 100% perfection. This is not Our Lady you're dealing with here. Okay? All right. But nonetheless, it's the picture of a saint on his way to, saint, to sainthood. Yes, Fadi? That's a very good question. How could it be that God told, okay, God told him, this is what I'm going to give you. And right when he gets there, he slapped him with a famine. Thanks, God. Right? So that might explain why he didn't pray or ask. Who knows? But no, there was only, there was only a desire of escape, escaping famine. It was purely material that led him down there. Yes. It was, he was between a, hard, a rock and a hard place. You stay, you die out of hunger. You go down, you make, he, he, he made a judgment call. Yes. Yes, what I said is that every time you see God appearing and God talking, it is not God the Father, it's God the Son. Because what the, 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 the fathers of the church tell us, especially St. John in his first uh, gospel, where he says, we have seen him. God the Father never appeared to anybody. It's only the Son who took on appearance. Right? And because he is the only mediator between us and God the Father. If this was not so, God the Father would have spoken directly to a man who would have become a mediator between God the Father and us. But there's only one mediator, Jesus Christ. And that is true of all times. Okay? Yes. Correct. The, the majority of them think, at least what I've read, the majority will think that they did, he didn't. St. Ephraim is the only one to indicate that he, he did. Because of the, um, of the uh, plague. They think that it was a personal plague that hit Pharaoh himself that prevented him from carrying that act. But and that's made, based... I mean, what made the Pharaoh give uh, Abraham all these gifts? Because it's a dowry. I'm taking your sister, I'm giving you the dowry for her. Right? It's, it's commensurate to her beauty. Essentially, from the Pharaoh's perspective, he dealt fairly with Abraham, never mind that he kidnapped her, Right? But essentially, he wants to show himself to be a gentleman, so he gives him all that stuff. Right? Yes. Yes. No. Everybody. That's the point. He's not, he has many under his care that he needs to think about. Right? And that's what probably drove him to go down to Egypt. Yeah? Yes. Hold on, uh, Bobby. Yes. No. It, the people of God is the church. Right? Today, the people of God is the Catholic Church. Right? Are not the people of God. Right? They don't have the sacramental life. They're not part of the church, etc., etc. However, they do have a special status because of all the covenants. Right? So they're not like everybody else. Right? But they're certainly not the people of God as it is today. They're not uh, followers of Jesus Christ. Right? That's why we say it's about the church. Yes. Yeah. Um, yes. So the first question is uh, concerning the Holy Spirit. Well, we've never seen the Holy Spirit either. The Holy Spirit manifests Himself. It's a theophany. 
but he's certainly not a dove. Right? So that's a manifestation of the Holy Spirit. The reason why this happens is because he's sent by the Son. Alright? He is sent by the Son, and because of this, he manifests the Spirit of the Son. And he appeared as a tongues of fire, he appears in symbolic fashion uh, to uh, effectively, uh, and it's only in view a couple of times that this has happened, and also the apostles, very specifically, to effectively begin the time of the church. Right? It is the time of the Holy Spirit, the time of Pentecost. So, very, very specific. It's not the Holy Spirit in person that we've seen. So, we have never really seen the Holy Spirit. We've never seen God the Father. The only one we've seen is God the Son. Okay. Uh, how did he appear? It's a theophany. So, he took on a form that Abraham could recognize, which is pres- presumably human. But he did not appear uh, as a man. Right? So some theophany, we have no details on it, but it's not a simple appearance. Now, there is an appearance that happens where God, we're going to talk about that later, where, where God, three, appeared to Abraham. Right? And the, that's before Sodom and Gomorrah. We'll get to that. We'll talk about this more. The theophanies usually are uh, essentially a communication you, in, impacting the visual sense. He saw something, but what did he see? We don't know. Like Moses, for instance, saw only the back of God, not his face. So what did Abraham see? We don't really know. No details. Yeah, but remember, uh, the point is, if you imagine God, you might see, you imagine a big person, and you see this uh, 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 sort of regular-sized person, right? But keep in mind, it's a good question, keep in mind that when God appears, the power, the power that shines forth will leave you without any doubt. This is not a mere vision or a mere image. This is power being present. All right? Any other question? Yes. There are many, many legends of the Jews about the childhood of Abraham, how he grew, what he did, and they're very fantastical. Uh, we have really no, reason, no, no indication why he chose Abraham. But as we observe him, React. we can see that he has received the grace as he grew up to be ready to listen to God's voice. And he probably has somehow found out that these gods were not true gods, and he probably found out quite a bit through the impulse of God. He responded to grace. Why did he choose him? I don't know. But definitely it wasn't sudden. He just, God didn't t- take somebody who was completely opposed to him, like St. Paul, and sort of knocked him off his horse. Abraham is more like St. Joseph. Right? He's, he's sort of prefiguration of St. Joseph, or Our Lady, if you will. In, in that he probably was thinking about all that growing up. But why, how, we don't know. We don't really have answers. Yeah. Hold on. Yes. Yeah, because uh, the, is, is there a difference between God's blessing to Abraham and that of Noah? Absolutely. Um, in a sense, the blessing of Noah has in um, contains the blessing of Abraham as a uh, as a seed hmm? because he gave the whole earth to Noah but with Abraham it becomes very very specific he's the first one by whom the nations will be blessed right so now faith becomes personal and it becomes really connected to sanctity it's still, it will take years and centuries for this notion to germinate among the Jews. 
Yes, down through all the history of Israel to Jesus Christ. Yes, exactly. Exactly. Yes? A uh, hundred and... Um, hundred and twenty? Pardon? hundred and twenty-five. No. No. No one... Nobody after essentially Methuselah and Noah and some of the generations lived that long. Alright, so let's end with a word of prayer then. We hope you've enjoyed this talk from Corbono. For more information about this and other talks, please visit our website at www.corbono.com. Thank you and God bless you.